Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Hey, uh, it's good to be back. I was um, gone for a couple of weeks, uh, missed one Sunday, but um, coming back into this week, we are wrapping up our series in Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you know this, uh, if you've lived in Alaska for very long, you're probably already keenly aware, but what you thought was spring last couple of weeks is what we call first spring. And then there's second spring, and then there's real spring. And then there's winter again. Um, so that's, uh, but it's coming, don't worry, but don't be fooled. Uh, and as I've thought about Ecclesiastes, I just have to say, coming into this series, I was a little bit apprehensive because over the years, as I've looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, I've wondered if it was written by Eeyore. Like, <laughs> this is all pointless and meaningless, and where's my tail? And like, I don't have any friends, and I'm going to go to the garden and eat worms. Um, and yet, this time, going through Ecclesiastes, I am finding so much life in it. I've actually really thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's reshaping the way that I think about a lot of things. Now, some of that could be due to my age, which, by the way, I heard this recently, and I'm adopting it fully. Um, I'm no longer referring to um, 51 as my age. I'm referring to it as my level, (laughs) which sounds way better. I'm at level 51. And I had a boss level back at 50. I just conquered it last week, and now I'm at level 51, um, so I can take it easy for a little bit. Um, But Ecclesiastes is a book of experience, and then wisdom passed on to you and I as a result of that experience. And this week, um, the title is Fear Factor. And we're going to be looking at some things in Ecclesiastes um, that actually create a tension for you and I, in particular in relationship to maybe what you believe God to be like. But first, I want to do something a little bit different. I just want to read a few of the things in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a collection of writings, and they're writings that are from someone just referred to as the teacher. And the teacher, um, as best we can tell because of the description in here and historical context, is most likely Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man to have ever lived, according to the scriptures, supernaturally gifted by God in the gift of wisdom. And so when you read through Ecclesiastes, every now and then you come across these things that sound like the book of Proverbs. Well, that's because it's the same author who is penning these words. But I want to read just some nuggets, if I could, some excerpts out of Ecclesiastes that I have just, as I've been reading through it, I've been like, that is so good. Uh, Chapter 7 is where I'll start. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. And the day you die is better than the day you are born. Interesting. You could sit on that for a while. We don't think that way, do we? Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. 
so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. We live in a world that says run from grief, run from sadness, and yet there is something that sadness affords us, gives us, if we will step into it and experience it. There's something to learn even there. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Better to be criticized by a wise person than to be praised by a fool. Finishing is better than starting, verse 8. Patience is better than pride. Control your temper, for anger labels you a fool. Don't long for the good old days. That is not wise. Verse 12, wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. Accept the way God does things, for who can straighten what he has made crooked? Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. Verse 20, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Don't eavesdrop on others. You may hear your servant curse you, for you know how often you yourself have cursed others. There's a good one. Like, now I want to know what they're saying about me. I want to hear what they're saying about me. Why? You know what you say about other people. Okay, we'll just keep moving because it probably doesn't resonate with anyone here. Uh, chapter 10, chapter 10. There is another evil I have seen under the sun. Kings and rulers make a grave mistake when they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to people of proven worth. That'll preach all day. Or how about this one in chapter 8, verse 11? When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. Mm, come on now. Chapter 11, verse 2, But divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. Diversify. Verse 4, Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If you watch every cloud, they never harvest. Verse 6, Plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon, for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another, or maybe both. And then in chapter 12, he's going to wrap it up, and it's going to move from the sayings of the teacher to the author. And the author is going to summarize in his own words everything that the teacher has been saying, all of these nuggets of wisdom, all of these observations about the futility of life, all of those things. Here's his conclusion in chapter 12, verse 9. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. The words of the wise are like cattle prods. Painful, but helpful. That's the whole story, verse 13. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad.
Here's the conclusion of the matter, that everything in life is meaningless, meaningless, is what the teacher says. Everything done under the sun, it all is vapor and mist. It's all going away. But the final conclusion is that you were actually made for more than this life under the sun. You were created to be in relationship with God forever. And that day is coming. Which brings me to Havel in a handbasket. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter one. Sorry, mom. My mom's in this service. It's like, really? Did you have to do that? Yes, I did. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse two. Here's how the teacher describes life. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We tend to think of vanity as like, fixing up our faces, getting Botox, putting on eyeshadow, whatever. Like vanity, but a, a description, Ecclesiastes 1-2, this is the Jonathan Walker paraphrase, which is a really good paraphrase. Um, but you could literally interpret it this way. Smoke and mist, says the teacher, vapor and breath, nothing really matters. And so when he's talking about life and the life you and I live, he describes it like a mist or like a vapor or like in the wintertime when you go out and go, and you see your breath and it's there, and then it's quickly gone. You saw it for a moment. I can still smell it because it's chloroseptic, but you, you can see it for a moment, and then it vanishes. It's like a vapor. It's quick and fleeting. And so how could what I do here ever matter in eternity? And this is the observation I made a couple of weeks ago. Ecclesiastes is one man's search for anything worthwhile in a wearisome world. Is there anything I could do in this life that will actually matter? And so he's going to head out and, and attempt four experiments. And the experiments were these. I brought them up a couple of weeks ago. He's going to pursue knowledge, see if knowledge could produce meaning for him, could produce significance for him. He's going to pursue pleasure. He's going to do whatever his heart desires, and he can afford to do it. He's going to pursue legacy. He's going to build monuments and buildings and vineyards and gardens to be remembered by, but he says, I won't care when I'm dead if anyone remembers me or not. It's meaningless. And then he's going to pursue hard work. Maybe if I just work hard, if I'm diligent, that will produce some meaning in my life. But everything he works for will end up in someone else's hands eventually. And even this is meaningless, he says. And then he addresses the three equalizers, the things that um, are uh, coming for us all, the things that are the same for us all. And the three great equalizers are these, time, death, and chance. It's interesting taxes aren't in there, but time, death, and chance are the great equalizers. We all have only so much time. Nobody has 27 hours in their day. We all have 24 hours in our day. We all have the same amount of time, and the time we actually have is right now. It's this moment that we're actually living in. We're not guaranteed any more than that. You don't know how much time you will have. You only know how much time you do have, and it's this moment. It's this time. And then death is coming for us all. He says, even the animals have this in common with us. We all die, we all go in the ground, and we all turn into dust. Everything is Havel. And then chance. In other words, life is not fair. You know this is true. He says the race doesn't always go to the swift. There are all kinds of circumstances that come into play. Um, if you saw the Super Bowl, I only saw a little bit of it here a couple of weeks ago, but one of the players was getting ready to run out on the field. He's on the sidelines. He's jumping like this, and he goes to take off and snaps his Achilles 
on the sideline. Like, you got injured in the Super Bowl? Yeah, almost. <laughs> right? Like, chance, right? Like, like, life is not fair. There are things that occur that take us off of our chosen path. Which brings me to hijacked. Uh, hijacked, by definition, is this. Stolen by force and misused on purpose. So if someone hijacks your car, they take your car by force and they use it for a purpose other than what you intended it to be used for. They hijack it. And I don't know if you know this, but in our world, um, words have been hijacked. Their meaning has radically changed. I'll give you a real obvious example. This will make sense probably as soon as you see it, but um, uh, Deck the Halls, the great Christmas carol. Deck the halls with boughs of holly, fa-la-la-la-la. That was terrible. <laughs> Tis the season to be jolly. Fa la 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 la. That was better. And then you go to the second verse, which is not the same as the first. Here's the second verse. Dawn, we now are gay apparel. Fa la 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 la. Troll, the ancient Yuletide carol. Fa la 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 la. Like, why are we putting on our gay apparel? And why are we trolling whoever Utah Carol is. Like, like, I don't even understand what's happening anymore. I know you're not supposed to troll people. And what does the word troll mean? And we think we know what the word gay means. But in this context, they don't mean any of those things. And so when my girls get to this one, they're like, why are we dressing in drag and trolling people? I don't understand. Like, why is this a Christmas carol, right? Like, because words get hijacked. I'm old enough that when I was a kid is when the, I almost said when the word gay transitioned. When, oh, that's, like, like, it still meant happy at that point, and it was in, in the process of becoming something else. Like, I can remember being confused, but now nobody's confused. There's really only one way we tend to think about it until we get to this Christmas carol, and then we have to explain it to our kids. Like, no, that's not what we're doing. Uh, uh, words get, I'll give you some more examples. These will probably make sense to you as well. Equality, equality of outcomes versus maybe what we believed in the past, equality of opportunities, that everyone must get the same outcome rather than the same opportunity. Or abuse is another one. Abuse is actually defined as experienced by the individual now. It doesn't have a clear definition anymore for us, which can be really challenging in pastoral counseling or in making decisions in your own life about what's the right thing to do. But abuse really is as experienced by the individual. Or the word tolerance Whereas the word tolerance used to mean that, um, that I valued you as a person and I valued your opinion, but I didn't give your opinion equal value to mine. I could disagree with you and believe you were wrong and still be tolerant, but I can't anymore. Or hate. Uh, hate is now actually disapproval of you and your decisions or rejection of you. And yet I could reject relationship with someone and not hate them. I could set boundaries in my life and not actually have hatred towards someone or gender. Gender is as desired rather than designed now. And when you allow words to get hijacked, communication and conversation become increasingly difficult. You actually have to reclaim definitions if you want to have intelligent conversation with one another. How about this word, love? What does the word love mean? 
In fact, with my girls here recently, I had this conversation with them. I said, girls, I just want you to know something. As your dad and as a pastor and as someone who believes the Bible and teaches the Bible, I believe that it's okay for a boy to love a boy and a girl to love a girl. Like, I love Forrest right here. I don't desire Forrest. It's up to his wife, but, but it, it should be appropriate and okay. But if you allow a word to be hijacked, here's what happens. When love means desire, passion, romantic, sexual, well, now the moment you say someone can't do those things, you're saying they cannot love. I'm not saying that. I actually think it's entirely appropriate for me to love Pete or to love Paul. But when you allow a word to be hijacked and then used to label you as unloving, we end up in trouble. Here's why it actually really matters. If you could use only one word to describe God, what would it be? I actually know what you think. We did a survey last year. I got 185 responses, and roughly three-quarters, or 75% of you said love. I gave several choices. God is just. God is sovereign. God is, but the word that we chose was the word love. God is love. And culturally, that's the identity that we've given to God as his primary overarching identity. And if that's true, then it's really important that there's a definition for love that is accurate. But it isn't the wrong word to use. In fact, in 1 John, it's exactly the word that John chooses to use to describe God. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is interesting. I just want to pause here for a second. He says, anyone who loves is a child of God. That's a really broad definition. So he must mean something specific by what he's saying here. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. So here's the question. If God is love, and all who love need not fear, then we must define what love is. In fact, he will go on in verse 18 and say this, such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. This is a verse that has been camped on for years and years now, with the idea that if you actually believe in Christ, if you've surrendered to Christ, if you love Jesus, then you have no fear whatsoever. That fear is something that should be expelled from the life of the believer, and all we need is love. Love, love, love is all we need. There's a principle when it 
comes to love, and it's this. The biblical love is primarily expressed through intentional actions rather than felt through intense emotions. We tend to associate the idea of love with an emotional engagement, which often is what we would refer to as infatuation, adoration, desire. But when you're talking about love from a biblical perspective, love actually shows up in action rather than intense emotion. There may be emotion that is coupled with it, but when you talk about love, as DC Talk said years and years ago, love is a verb. That love actually is connected to action. It primarily is expressed through intentional actions versus intense emotions. And so if all we need is love, well, there's some biblical descriptions of what love is, and more specifically, what love does. And maybe for you, if you grew up in church, you've been around church long at all, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, comes to mind. In fact, next week we start a series in the Song of Solomon. Ooh, that is a midwinter pick-me-up, in case you were wondering. Uh, <laughs> buckle up. Uh, but we're going to be launched into that next week. But, uh, but here, here's the thing. Um, if all we need is love, here's some biblical descriptions of love. Love is patient. It's kind. It's humble. It's sacrificial. But love also does not tolerate wrongdoing. That's an interesting description. Like, does not tolerate? It pursues justice. It protects the needy. It believes the truth. It tells the truth, and it obeys the truth, which means that truth actually has to exist for any of those things to be possible. So there must be some objective standard for what is true and what isn't. But if you were asking for a biblical description of love, this would be a biblical description of love. And at its core, biblical love is selfless and sacrificial. Worldly love at its core is actually selfish and self-serving. It doesn't mean that no one who is an unbeliever wouldn't sacrifice for someone else, but it is rooted in the belief that I will give in order to get, that there must be some reciprocation in my acts of sacrifice or service. It's actually self-serving or selfish. And yet biblical love is actually giving entirely sacrificially. Which brings me to knock-knock. I knew it. So I did it in first service as well. There's been an, uh, an active effort in our generation to redefine not just words, but God. I put my trigger alert up there, just so you know. You might be triggered. Lately, I've seen several memes show up or apparel that's coming on the scene that's related to Supreme Court decisions, or it's, but it's really all rooted in a misunderstanding of who God is. And so it appears on the surface to have some sort of logic to it, but actually at the end of the day, its intention is to malign the Christian belief in a God who is loving or compassionate or just. And so I'll give you a couple of examples here. This is a t-shirt I've seen several times now. Uh, a God who killed his own son doesn't care about abortion. 
Or another way to say it would be this one. Oh, so God could kill his own son, but I can't. Now, probably for most of you in the room, you're thinking to yourself, that is not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. But I'd actually like to ask a more fundamental question because this idea has shown up in a lot of different ways, not even connected to the abortion issue, but directly connected to the character of God issue. And this is the question I would ask in relationship to this idea. Did God the Father kill his helpless son? That's the core idea that somehow God was so cruel that instead of killing Satan, which would have made sense, he killed his own son. But did God kill his son? Well, I can tell you that Jesus doesn't seem to think that that's true. And in fact, here's what he had to say about it. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily which is very different than the abortion issue. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. Jesus, in full knowledge of the authority that he has, completely clear on what he wanted to accomplish, comes into our world, voluntarily lays down his life because he knows he's going to take it back up again forever. But if you could accuse God of being unjust, of killing his own kid, no, God the Father allows God the Son to offer his own life for our salvation. It's a very different picture of God. I'll give you another one. Maybe you've seen this picture before, Jesus standing at the door and knocking. It's with the passage, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open it, I would come in. We'd eat some food together. We'd fellowship together. We'd have relationship with one another. I'm knocking at the door. Are you going to open it? Are you going to open it? And this is the one I've seen recently. Um, uh, let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in which is kind of funny because it's how a parent sounds. Like, open this door right now. Why? So I can help you. <laughs> With what? From getting your tail beat. That's what, like, like, maybe mom and dad say that when they're knocking at the door. But it puts Jesus in this light of, he's the one that's going to hurt you. Couldn't he just decide not to hurt you? Like, why do you have to respond at all? Can't he just be nice to you? It's actually intended, even though it has some humor to it, it's actually intended to paint the person of Christ or God in a particular light as cruel and unloving. But here's the question I would ask. Does Jesus place people who reject him in hell, or do people who reject him put themselves under God's judgment? Those are two very different perspectives. And maybe the best way to describe it would be um, this way, under my umbrella, Ella. Okay, sorry. A better um, a finish to that particular meme would actually be this. Uh, let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From where your rebellion will lead you. Like, take ownership of it. Like I've made, if you just open the door, I would come in. We would have relationship and fellowship together. I could rescue you from where your own decisions 
and choices and rebellion are going to take you. That's actually a more biblical picture of what happens. Maybe the way to describe it would be to describe someone standing out in a torrential downpour. In fact, my girls went skiing for the first time ever um, this last weekend. We got a day, we broke away, and went up to Alieska. Um, it was it was a torrential downpour, like 40 mile an hour winds. Most of the lifts are shut down, and it is sideways rain at 40 degrees, pelting my girls. <laughs> They're like, oh no, we'll try it. I told them afterwards, I'm like, if you enjoyed skiing in a hurricane, you're going to love skiing in the wintertime. Like, I promise you, it's not always like this. But imagine someone being out in that sort of pelting rain. And imagine that the rain that's coming down is actually the judgment of sin. God's wrath being poured out because God's judgment and his justice and his wrath are coming against sin. It was never intended to be against his creation, against humanity. But imagine the guy in the rain is offered an umbrella, and if he will take the umbrella, Ella, Ella, and he will put it over his head, he could experience some protection. And then imagine that what the umbrella actually is, is the love of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. And if you put it in this light, what Jesus is offering is protection from what our own sin has placed us under. He's extending an invitation to anyone, anyone who would be willing to come under the protection and provision of Christ. And the question actually is, will you step under Jesus? Will you allow him to be your defense? Because a God of righteousness, a God of justice, it demands that judgment on sin and wickedness be brought at some point. That day is coming, which brings me to the fear factor. George McDonald, who um, was uh, probably one of the most respected authors and theologians of his time by a guy named C.S. Lewis, who maybe you've heard of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. He absolutely was a great apologist, um, was able to frame things in a particular way. But his influence, one of his primary influences, was a man named George MacDonald. C.S. Lewis has a collection of George MacDonald's writings called an anthology. And this excerpt is from that collection of George MacDonald's writings. But here's what George MacDonald had to say. Now, British authors can be challenging to understand. Sorry, Julia, it's just true. Um, uh, uh, but once you get in the rhythm, you'll, you'll get it. But here's what George MacDonald had to say. Persuade people that fear is a vile thing, that it is an insult to God, that he will have none of it, while they are yet in love with their own will and slaves to every movement of passionate impulse. And what will the consequence be? 
He says, tell people that God doesn't want you to experience fear at all. God hates the idea of fear. You have nothing to be afraid of. Promote that idea in a culture where people are still pursuing their own will, their own passions, their own desires. They're still slaves to those things. And then tell them they have nothing to be afraid of. And what will the consequence be in a world where fear is expelled from the mind? That's what he says. They will insult God as a superstition, a thing to be cast out and spit upon. After that, how much will they learn from him? In other words, if God is not feared, he will not be revered in a culture. If God is actually impotent and all he is is love by your definition of love, if he would never bring judgment or he would never bring justice, but he is under a mandate to only be compassionate, to only be kind, no matter what choice you make, eventually that God will be viewed as irrelevant and impotent in a world. He can do nothing, therefore why should I be afraid of him? There are two most repeated commands in the Bible. One of them is this one, fear God. It's inescapable in the scriptures. I mean, at least 85 times in some form, fear God is a command that is given to you and I. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, it is an oft-repeated command. Ecclesiastes 5.7, talk is cheap like daydreams and other useless activities. Fear God instead. Ecclesiastes 8.12, I know that those who fear God will be better off. Ecclesiastes 12.13, here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. Just in case you thought that was like just an Old Testament thing, let's see what Jesus has to say about it. Luke 12, verse 4 through 7, dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. But I tell you whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you and throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. Huh? I don't like this sermon. Me either. Get over it. Like, like he, now watch this. What is the price of five sparrows? He's at the temple and he's asking these sparrows that are offered for sacrifice. So somebody's going to buy them and then they're going to be killed and offered as a sacrifice. What's the price of two sparrows? What is it? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Because the second and more often repeated command in the Bible is this, fear not. And this one is given over and over and over again to those who fear God. Because once you've understood who he is, his power, his authority, his might, his sense of justice, his sense of righteousness, his desire and plan that will not fail to eradicate sin in our world. When you understand that God, 
all of the sudden, the grace and mercy and compassion and tenderness extended to you and I actually means something. And those who fear God have nothing else to fear in this life. If you start there with a correct understanding of who God is, of what his power and might is like, then you actually can experience the love of God in a way that you could not if God was under a mandate to just love you by your definition of love. But when he loves you in spite of the rest of who he is called to be and will be in the world through the person of Jesus, all of a sudden, your own affection for him swells to new places. And this tension between these two ideas is absolutely critical. In fact, John Bloom says it this way, often God's most repeated commands are the means by which we can obey God's most important commandments. The most important commandments, according to Jesus, are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hangs on these two commandments, love and love. Well, the pathway to those two commandments is actually through the fear of the Lord. I understand who he is, and I understand the love he has extended to me, the compassion and mercy and grace he's extended to me. How could I hold anything against you based on what he's forgiven me of in light of who he is? And all of a sudden, that commandment becomes easier to adhere to because I've actually applied the first two. Here's the principle. Until God is rightly defined for us as who he is, we cannot truly delight in him for what he's done. Until we understand him for who he actually is, we are not able to truly delight in what he has done. Here are the two most referenced traits, characteristics of God that you will find in the scriptures. His steadfast love, or maybe your translation says his unfailing love, 180 times at least, and his fierce wrath, 142. We dare not banish the idea of fear because there are moments where I need to know I am experiencing his kindness and his mercy because of my willingness to live in repentance towards him, not because he is obligated. I want to stay right here under the umbrella. I want to be right here under your provision and your protection. I want to open the door every time you knock on it. It's why a man like David is described as a man after God's own heart. It's not because he was sinless. It's because he was always after the heart of God. He was always returning to that place of recognition of his need because of God's power and authority and might, and it produced repentance in him. For years, I looked at Romans chapter 8 as this passage that described how nothing could remove you. But even in Romans chapter 8, you're going to discover that the same tension exists between the fierce wrath of God and the intense or unchanging steadfast love of God. Let's just wrap up and look at this. I want to invite you to stand with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Maybe this is a familiar passage to you. There is therefore... Our lights are having seizures today. I'm sorry. <laughs> I might also. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. My clicker doesn't work anymore either. It's apparently gone crazy as well. Oh, there we go. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, this is the passage, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. People often ask me, do you believe that someone could lose their salvation? Or do you believe that people are eternally secure no matter what after they say yes to Jesus? And my response to that is yes. To both. Often I find that it depends on who I'm talking with. There are moments I need to be reminded that God is not obligated to love me no matter what I choose or what I do. He is under no obligation. It is a gift of God through the person of Jesus. And I actually bear responsibility to remain in Christ. To live right here in him. Because when I'm in him, there ain't nothing in the world that could separate me from the love of God. I don't remain in him by my good behavior. Here's what you need to understand. This is a fundamental difference about Christianity than other performance-based religions. I did nothing to earn his salvation other than open the door. I did nothing to earn it. My good works did not earn my salvation, and my bad works cannot lose it. If it was gained by faith, it's maintained by faith. But faith shows up in action. Sometimes that action is just repentance. And often that action is obedience. But it shows up in action. And I live in this tension. Because sometimes there's a guy I'm sitting with, and he's like, I can do whatever I want. I already prayed the prayer, and I got baptized. And I'm like, man, you're right. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, provided that you're in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? Is that where you're dwelling? Is that whose protection you're coming under right now? And there are other times that someone has lived their entire life terrified that they were losing their salvation every 10 minutes. I'm just telling you, I got saved every Sunday when I was a kid. I was certain I needed it. My mom would probably agree, I did. But like, I got saved every Sunday, but somebody needed to remind me that once you've come into relationship with Jesus, your sin doesn't separate you from him because your good behavior didn't bring you into that relationship. It all boils down to faith, and faith is displayed through repentance and obedience. So the question is, Do you trust him? You're safe. You're secure. You're not being plucked out of his hand because somebody told you you were or because you messed up. The question is, will you stay in him? Will you return to him over and over and over again? Will you live right here? You're secure. You're safe. Don't worry. And that's a tension we must live inside of. It's actually a tension that love demands. 
because of who God is. He is graceful and kind, merciful, and he is righteous, and he is judge, and he is eternal. So Jesus, our prayer is that we would discover how to live in this place, that those who have come to a place of recognition of your awe, your power, your authority, your righteous judgment that is inevitable. Those who fear you have nothing else to fear. May we reclaim these words that define who you are. May our lives be transformed as a result. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.